Welcome to Listening Through Time with the New York Philharmonic. This is Barbara Hawes, the archivist and historian of the New York Philharmonic. In this podcast series, we are going inside the orchestra, comparing how Philharmonic musicians over time played certain licks or passages in a variety of works. Are they the same or different, and why? Our guides in this journey are the Philharmonic players themselves, both current and former members. For the Philharmonic's 175th anniversary season, Sony Classical released a 65-CD box set of the orchestra's recordings dating from 1917 through 1996, and this got us thinking about new ways of listening and assessing the Philharmonic's history. Generally, recordings are identified by the conductor or composer rather than the orchestra. We speak of the conductor's interpretation, his vision of the work. Rarely do we listen for a particular group of players might bring to the piece, and we have probably never listened to a set of recordings to discern long past influences that may still be heard in the playing of the orchestra. But that is the very opportunity offered by the Philharmonic's vast recording collection, one of the longest recording legacies in the world. What do we hear beyond the interpretation of a single conductor, beyond the changes in the instruments themselves or a long-lost style of playing? Can we hear echoes of the past that may still be living on through the players themselves? For the real archive of the New York Philharmonic is sitting on stage. It is the musicians, rehearsing and performing together, side by side, day in, day out, for years on end. Working in a symphony orchestra is like no other job. Physical proximity and sensitive cooperation is required for decades, and in this intimate, confined space, the stage, The experience and memories of one player are transferred to another in the next generation, most times imperceptibly. That player takes that experience, adds to it, and in turn passes on the memory into the future. For the New York Philharmonic is a musician's orchestra. While the players inhabit and express each maestro's point of view, in this ensemble, the players themselves provide the continuity. Today we are joined by Joseph Alessi, who joined the trombone section of the Philharmonic in 1985. Welcome, Joe. It's Hi, great to have you Barbara here. Barbara Arm. I'm very honored to be here. I should also say that uh, we are recording this podcast on location in the Philharmonic's archives. So I guess we could say live from the archives. Yeah, and I. <laughs> I'd love to spend a lot more time over here uh, looking around. It'd Any, be great. Anytime. I, I think the, the best part of, of these podcasts is I get a chance to, to speak one-on-one with so many musicians that I've known for so many years, and, and it's, a, it's a real real treat. To well, be we all love talking to you. <laughs> we really do. Thank you very yeah. much. It's really great. You know, we've, we've talked about what we wanted to listen to from this uh, CD set, and 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 to provide a continuity from something you've played on going back in time, uh, and and so I think it'd be great. You started in the orchestra in 1985, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent some time in the Philadelphia Orchestra f- for four years, and Ricardo Muti uh, hired me there, and then I went to uh, Montreal Symphony with Charles Dutois, and then just a short stint there, and then directly to the Philharmonic. So when I looked up, you you actually started on the tour in 1985. You went mm-hmm. on the first European, your first tour was with Zubin mm-hmm. to Europe, uh, and then and then you really began in earnest in 85, 86. Right. Uh, Zubin had come to the uh, Montreal Symphony 
after my audition. And so he wanted me to come immediately. The Montreal Symphony didn't like that. And of course, Zarin, his brother, uh, ran the Montreal Symphony. So it was, I think I sort of let them work it out. But uh, the long short story is, is that I started in April. I arrived of 85, I arrived, and we started rehearsing all the tour repertoire. And incidentally, it was Mahler 5, which we just completed uh, a, a run of concerts last week with our new music director, Jaap van Sweden. Right. Wow, I didn't realize it was Mahler 5 you were doing that, Yeah, too. Chris Chris Lamb, the percussionist, said, remember, this is how we started. Because he, you know, he started five. at the same time. Exactly at the same time. Wow. Wow, yeah. isn't that... The, the connections are really, really remarkable, but... It, but the first time you played with Leonard Bernstein mm-hmm. was the Tchaik Six, Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number. No. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was or that or if it was uh, Copland's Third Symphony or perhaps Mahler Seven. It, it all all that happened around the same time in but that season. But yeah. on tour, you took the Tchaikovsky yes, Six. We did, and right. we we went to California. Uh, I remember we stayed at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And uh, I remember Michael Jackson coming to the concert in Royce Hall. Right. And they they had a big meeting. And on the same con- on the same tour, uh, we played the Concord Pavilion near San Francisco. And then my parents came. And uh, you know, I can tell you all about that later. But H- had you had you played with Bernstein before coming to the Philharmonic? No, no never. So he was, was he it. was just a. You know, I watched him on, of course, on all the young people's concerts uh, as a young boy. And uh, I've heard heard a lot of, about him through my father and through William Vaccano, who were my, my father and William Vaccano were very close friends. Vaccano was my, uh, my father's teacher, a trumpet teacher here in New York, and they worked together a lot. So, and I, I met a lot of those players when I was very young, when, this, when the New York Philharmonic would come on tour to uh, the West Coast. And um, remember, I remember hearing uh, Mahler One uh, a long time ago. Uh, Mahler One was the, the r- record, LP, that I used to look at and dream about all the time. I used to look at this record in California where I grew up. And, and I, you know, I was. At a, was a, a t- at a time in my life where I was collecting anything that had to do with uh, you know trombone passages and brass passages. I wanted to have a, a, a collection. I wanted to have the music, and I wanted to have the LP. And so Mahler One, of course, was something that um, I was attracted to immediately. And I you know, had the picture of the orchestra on the, on the cover. And, and of course, William Vaccano, I knew him said, wow, I know somebody in the New York Philharmonic. Because he came to your home he came in to California. My, he came to my home in California on one of those tours, and I had just started playing the trombone. And, um, so How my, old about? Oh, I was probably eight or nine. Okay. And I had played trumpet before that, but I had switched to trombone, and I had to perform for, I think it was William Vaccano and Frank Ruggieri. Yes. Maybe. Yes. And, and Carmen Fonerato. Wow, yeah, all, all of them were there. Yeah, they all came to the house and and, and said, you know, my dad, he, I was called Joey back then. So Joey, uh, he had, in his New York accent, he said, play something. And said, Why don't you play Aida? You know, so I played, <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Anyway, 
And uh, Bacchiano says, he always remembered that when I played that for him. And, and he said, you're the only you know, young student or player that plays that absolutely correctly in time. You know, so you, you know, the rhythms and so forth. Right. So, um, anyway, so that when I was a young <laughs> lad, I used to dream about uh, orchestras, and and I also um, explored other orchestras as well. But you know, I had that real strong connection with the New York Philharmonic. Well, uh, yes, and with well, just New York because of your father yeah, and I, your grandfather, right? Yeah, my Both my, of them. my grandfather. Came from Sicily and and started uh, in the Rialto Theater. That was uh -huh. his job, and then he became trumpet professor at Manhattan School of Music. He knew all the players of that time. He, he knew Vincent Bach. They were very good friends. Um, uh, a little a little quick story about Vincent Bach, because he made you know he was the maker of the greatest trumpets and trombones in the yeah. world, and he lived in. Um, he started his, his first his factory was in, in New York City, then they moved to Mount Vernon, New York. So anyway, recently, uh, the brass historian Steve Dillon, my very good friend, he, he is a he is a has a wealth of knowledge about all the brass players back in that time. And sometime we should get him over at the at the Philharmonic for a talk or Great. something because it's he's just so knowledgeable. Anyway, he said he, he came up he came up with uh, some instruments, um, found some instruments instruments from Nancy Bach, who was the daughter of Vincent Bach, and uh, he said I have all these trumpets here, uh, and Nancy wants to auction them off, and I'm doing this for her. There's one bass trumpet in there, and so I I uh, went ahead and auction you know bid on that, and I won it. Well, I won that auction, and and I have that instrument. It was never none of these instru instruments were ever played. Oh, really? Ever, because <laughs> she she brought them home. Uh, um, Vincent Bach brought these instruments home for her to try, and she never touched them. She just didn't have any interest. And so, anyway, um, I bought the bass trumpet, and then there was one mouthpiece in the collection, a trumpet mouthpiece, and it turned out that this mouthpiece was stamped. Alessi, just by a, a fluke, and anyway, that's because Vincent Bach and my my f my grandfather they got together they and they you know my uh, Vincent Bach worked on all the mouthpieces and, and instruments of my my uh, grandfather, so they were good buddies. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, yeah. Right, and you and got this. Yeah. Huh. Anyway. That's a great story. It is an yeah, interesting uh, tidbit. Were they, were they, uh, was your father disappointed that you decided to not continue with the trumpet and, and play trombone? No, no, it was his idea to oh, move me to trombone. Yeah, and, and um, you know, I started very young uh, playing the cornet, and I was quite good at it, uh, technically with the fingers and so forth. Um, but, you know, at, at eight years old, I didn't have much of a high register. And um, he just, I don't know, maybe from being a trumpet player and seeing what trumpet players go through, and, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, maybe, maybe I'll try having my son play trombone. And he brought a trombone home, and, and um, anyway, there's a whole story behind that, but he, I didn't really want to do this, I, I, and I was very upset that he brought this trombone home because, you know, I wanted to be like him. And um, so I tried it anyway, but... The interesting thing is that 
a tuning note on a on a trumpet. It's a you know a B flat, and if you if on the high B flat of a trombone is the same note, basically. Okay, so my f one of my first notes was a high B flat, and which you know many kids at that age couldn't even get that note, but that was al already in my brain from the trumpet. From the trumpet. Yeah. So it, you know the high registers. So it gave you an advantage that uh, you had you had started out on the trumpet and then we're moving it over. Seems, yeah. It seems so, yeah. yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. How long did it take you to say, okay, this is what I want to do? Well, I think when I, uh, back then there wasn't, you know, we I heard all the recordings of orchestras, but there was a, I didn't really understand what the trombone could do until the Chicago Symphony uh, Low Brass put out an educational uh, LP um, that went through just all the most famous excerpts. And you could hear the trombones and tuba together with the great Arnold Jacobs. And <clears throat> um, Jay Friedman, who, who was part of that project, is still playing in the Chicago Symphony. So uh, that's amazing feat. Nice. So anyway, I started listening to that. And I said, this is cool. This is, this is something I, I, can, I would like to do. Right. And then, of course, J.J. Johnson... Uh, he was a huge influence on me and, and hearing his sound and his jazz playing. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, well <coughs> go back to yes. your beginnings with the Philharmonic. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and I, because we, we're going to listen to the Tchaikovsky. Right. Um, I, we didn't play the Tchaikovsky, the Philharmonic didn't play the Tchaikovsky in the hall that summer it started out in the parks concert mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and in leonard bernstein it was the last time he conducted a parks concert wow and mm -hmm. i was there i remember mm -hmm. this um it was uh if you could have standing room only in the parks it that was it mm -hmm. uh and it, it it was a remarkable experience i remember it opened with um the serenade Mm -hmm. With Dick Rowe, oh yes, Glenn, right. soloing on a on a serenade, mm -hmm. and I and at first thought, well, that that's um, sort of a silly choice because it it's such a quiet has such a quiet opening, mm -hmm. quiet moments, and yet also if you could hear a pin drop in the park, that was the time you could hear it. I've never heard uh, uh, over a hundred thousand people be so quiet, and then and then of course then the ending was the Tchaikovsky yes. Sixth Symphony, which then you took on tour. Yes, and um, th this recording is the, the at least the last movement I think is the longest duration of any recording of, of this work. My understanding too from the stories is that every time he conducted it on tour, and then and then it was recorded back in the hall, it just kept getting slower mm -hmm. and slower. Yeah. Did you get that sense yes, of that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and 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 <laughs> being the leader of the section, you know, when you come in on this chorale. It's it's very sensitive. The gong, there's a big gong, and then the trombones come in. But the maestro's down downbeat lasted forever. <laughs> I mean, so it started way up high, and went came way you know real slow, and we didn't know when to come in. So I just told the section, you know, right about when he's maybe a three quarters of the way down, let's all take a breath. You know, don't take the breath. Uh, you know in the beginning because we're going to be sitting there with air in our lungs and and so that was something that uh, we we all worked on and the other thing that happened on that tour also this is interesting is I think leading up to the the tour he, he commented on our volume uh, 
in the th- in the third movement, maybe, or maybe mm. the first movement, the first movement, the big section, the first movement, bomb, bing, da dum, and you know we were being judicious about how much sound, and he said, "Come on, you hunky brutes." <laughs> <laughs> and let's hear some sound. So, and the whole orchestra laughed, and and uh, uh, so we we decided to get uh, some shirts made up, hunky brutes. I don't know if you've yes, heard the story. And it was a, like five dollar shirts. It was the, the the quality of the shirt wasn't that great. We we were in on we were on that tour in in California, walking around, walking along Santa Monica Beach with the section, and said, let's get these shirts. It was five bucks. And and they said, you know, for another dollar you can put something on it. So we had hunky brutes, and we had four or five of them. I think Dave Finlayson still has his shirt, and I might have mine. But anyway, so he he loved this. We presented this to him. He just absolutely said, "This is the best present ever," you know that you know. And then um, later on, he wore it for uh, conducting, I think, the European Youth Orchestra or something like this. I think it might have been the Vienna Philharmonic even. Uh, I think this mm-hmm. was a youth orchestra. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. At least the, the story gets embellished. Yeah, as it goes and so on. it's on YouTube. You can okay. you can look it up, and and he and he says you're probably he was wearing a regular shirt, and then underneath was the t-shirt, and so somewhere in the middle of the rehearsal he said you're, I'd like to tell you a story, you know, and and because he wanted some sound, it was related to his rehearsal, uh, wanting more sound. So he opened up his shirt, and he says take a look at this and everybody laughed said, you know I said well let me tell you the story and then we he told that story and I guess he wore it many times you know I think he did yeah. I think he loved it I mean you know so so should we listen to the hunky brooks from the uh, Tchaikovsky sure uh, last yeah. movement of Tchaikovsky sixth symphony After listening to this, this is this is so slow. <laughs> I can't believe how slow this is. And uh, leading up to it is so slow. But you know, after playing this so many times, this stands out as a very heartfelt uh, performance. And the emotion and the the warmth and you know the the uh, if you look in the score, there's little hairpin crescendos. So from piano to, to mezzo piano, and then it repeats, and then it gets softer, pianissimo to piano. 
if you if you're allowed that much time to do that you can you know you can really make that expressive so he he was a genius i i didn't mind doing it this slow it was very challenging to get it together with him but um you know once we figured out where when to breathe and to, and to realize that each note was almost uh, like a, a chapter in a story, you know, a whole chapter. So I, I actually really enjoy this version, and, and I've, there's never been any conductor who has done it that slow since, you know. And it, and it didn't fall apart. I was, I was in the hall mm-hmm. listening to that recording session, and uh, it, what was remarkable it, is that he kept that tension. Mm-hmm. That was it, so many times you, you, it will just dissolve; it'll f- just die. Yeah. But it, but he, the tension was just remarkable. Yeah. It, in that. Yeah, um, you can feel you can feel that, and um, I, uh, you know, when you when I would speak with him on occasion, his his warmth, his uh, concern for musicians, and um, uh, you know, it was just. I have never experienced that before, or well, since. I I heard <laughs> him. I, I I heard him introduce you one time as uh, uh, the best musician he'd ever heard, oh. the finest musician yeah. he'd ever heard. Well. And he qualified it and said, "And I don't mean brass player. I mean musician." Wow. wow. And and it was the first time I realized that it, you know it wasn't just playing an instrument. And he was talking there about your insights as a musician. And and what you brought to the music itself, mm-hmm. um, but I I've always remembered that as being um, quite quite a tribute. And I and I think you've always lived up to that quite frankly well, too. You. I mean, as, for as much that's as I know, and what do I know? But I I listen to Leonard Bernstein, and I and I think that's um, you you made all of his musical dreams there come true. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was to be one of the musicians. To get to work with him, it was a, a privilege in, in in musical history. I think just just to have that opportunity, and if I had arrived a little bit later, I wouldn't had it, you right. know any chance. Well, and this performance is <coughs> analyzed a lot. You know, why is he slowing it down so much? What does that mean? Is it his own, um, y- y- you know, way of hanging on to life because he was getting near the mm. end of his life? Although mm. I don't think he necessarily thought that maybe he felt mm-hmm. that but mm-hmm. you know his own not wanting to let go mm-hmm. um and so it is it's one of those monumental not just per- work but performances in and of itself so. absolutely and i i agree with you on that i i um now Mahler too of course was you know the, we that big project with Concertgebouw and yeah. and um the deutsche gramophon project and the other orchestra was vienna i think right, right. okay right. but we got to record the seven, sorry, two, three, and seven, which are the my three favorite. So the Mahler two, that was there's one story about commuting. We talked about commuting commuting earlier because you know I live uh, 26 miles away, and that one night when Leonard Bernstein was conducting, I had big traffic problems, and um, <laughs> anyway, to, what happened is I panicked. Okay, so I was at the George Washington Bridge. And I said, this is not moving. And they, they said that the beams have, had cracked underneath the apartments uh, on the other side of the bridge and that they're, they're diverting all this traffic onto local streets. And I figured it would be that like that forever. So I just panicked. 
I dumped my car on the New Jersey side. I had my trombone. I ran across the bridge. <laughs> you did. I did. You did. You I ran did. Across. I ran across the bridge. <laughs> and anyway, I got on the A train at 7.30. And I said, man, I'm going to make wow, it. Wow, 181st Street? Yeah, right and there? it takes 20 minutes to get to, to Columbus Circle. So I said, oh, I can make it. And so we were going along fine, and then the, the train got stuck between oh. two stations. Oh, no. At least 10 or 15 minutes. And there was no, I didn't have a cell phone. No, There were no cell phones back then. And I, I just didn't know, I, I was panicking. I, I can't get off this train. I'm, not, I'm totally out of control of my life. <laughs> and anyway, I arrived, ran, I finally arrived, and I ran uh, into the hall. I arrived about 10 minutes after 8. And I thought for sure I'd hear the orchestra playing, and but they waited for me. I was there were other people late that night, but anyway, the long, long story short is I went to Bernstein afterwards and I apologized. He said, "Don't worry, you know we wouldn't have started without you." And but he was he was very he's always very kind, just a nice man. Well, I have to say though that that Bernstein. I, I just think he loved the musicians. I mean, he he genuinely he did. He did. He did. And and, and, um, and you always had that feeling when he was in the hall. There was this there was this greater kind of level of um, uh, just just um, kind of a free zone. It just this this air that mm-hmm. seemed to be there when he would be. Well, he was, he, he was a legend for uh, uh, and so many people. He was the true American conductor, and then international conductor, of course, and composer and just he did it all he was the musician's musician he, he was a you know I, I tell the story a musician needs to know certain things like an electrician knows a certified electrician you know and then the words that end in c-i-a-n you can go on and on and on uh, with those words and and these are you know you pay these people to come to your home and work or whatever and they're no, they know what they're doing there's a lot of instrumentalists out there that are fine musicians but he is he was the top musician he knew rhythm pitch theory uh conducting you know uh uh, phrasing you know he knew it all and and also he was he was a humbled i always felt he was a humbled kind of guy he was he wasn't um uh, didn't put on a big air about him Hmm. he he was very approachable Hmm. to me at least to me he was Right. You know, he gets if he had a concern, he said, "Come, come, tell me." You well, know? you knew a lot about him before you came, uh, at, because because as you say, he was famous. He was a god in the music world by 1985. Uh, did he? Did anything surprise you when you in the first rehearsal or that, oh, that you went? You went. Well, wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah, the, the one the one big story was uh, maybe in the age of anxiety or something. Uh, um, you know, he he. The, the rehearsal was well. Sorry, the rehearsal started with a big speech by him about the reason why he composed it, and then it went on to uh, life, uh, you know, concerns and po- politics, and even sex. Um, and it went on and on and on and on. And I leaned over to Phil Smith and I said, "When do you think we're going to play our first note?" <laughs> and we all had a like a you know put bets down or something <laughs> and, and it, I think it wasn't until at least 45 minutes after the rehearsal starts so rehearsal starts at 10 we didn't play anything until 10 45 wow. maybe something like yeah. that and then so that was a little surprising right? you know but you know 
you know, when you get when you get to that age, and I've talked to people, people can do whatever they want, right? You know, and right. and, and especially him. Right. So, <laughs> well, well, you know, he always had something to, uh, interesting to say here, and he loved to in his scores, and then we'll go listen to his nineteen his performance of this at the same spot from 1960s, but I wanted to show you the beginning of the second movement. He, he writes in his scores a lot, these kinds of things, so in the Chike 6, you know, which is kind of this disjointed waltz. It's not really a waltz, it's a waltz in five, I guess, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so simultaneously, two over three, three over two equals ambiguity equals charm. Hmm. And and mm -hmm. so he always distills any of these thoughts down mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. kind of that those essences that he writes in the score, but I don't I, and I think and then of course he writes in here all the times there's three over two to two over three and this sort of thing as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. um, but but I don't know if he like shared these with you or it's just about everything because I think that he didn't speak I think he's he started to speak a lot more at mm -hmm. rehearsals as mm -hmm. he got on. Yes. He didn't do that early. Yeah. Early yeah. In his, well, his we were, I enjoyed listening to it. I mean, it <laughs> was, it was great. I, would I mean, that was the first time I had heard him pontificate that way. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. I was, I mean, I, it was weird to, to have a conductor come in and talk for that amount right. of time, but I, you know, it was fascinating. Right. I really right. enjoyed it. Anyway, we got to the end of the rehearsal of that rehearsal and, it it went overtime, of course, and at one o'clock, we that's the double overtime period, or maybe it's triple overtime. But the musicians, if they have a, a teaching engagement, or they might even have another playing engagement, you know, they can leave. And so many, not tons of musicians left. I didn't leave, of course. I stayed there, uh, and and but several left, and he he got upset at that. And rightly so, I think. I think, you know, he, he did comment, you know, I, he got angry. I've heard the comment. Yeah. I, I've heard yeah. it repeated. Yeah. About who bought their swimming pools. E exactly. <laughs> Stuff like that. And, and and Phil Smith didn't leave. I didn't leave. Many, right. and the whole, in the brass section, nobody left. No, right. Oh, let's listen to the, what what is this one we have? We have the, uh, let's hear how Lenny did it in the 60s. 1964. It's probably a lot faster. I One imagine. would think. With yeah. Ed Herman this time. Okay. Leading the section. You knew Ed? He, uh, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, he was my predecessor. Very different. Very different. The, the, of course, the, the, the speed is different. Tempo is different. It's much f faster. The way that they did this, these swells, you know, there's these hairpin crescendos. They, they almost did it as an accent on the downbeat. Mm -hmm. You can hear it. Where we did it more contoured. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just a different, maybe Maestro Bernstein in, in, indicated that in his, sorry, his gestures, or maybe he told them 
about that. But uh, you know, I I know when I perform that you know if I if I take something that I haven't played for ten years and I play it again, it's different. You just have different ideas. Why should somebody play it the same ten years ago? You know. Right. Uh, so that's and and actually listening to Stanley Drucker and his playing, he always had a different take every night almost <laughs> and so but i enjoyed that i yeah. enjoyed that why should you play something exactly the same way every time you can and if you have a great idea yes but you know well, over a 10-year or 20-year period or how much this was recorded when in 60 let's see it's recorded 64 yeah so 25 years later right. or something like that uh you know he he had a different viewpoint on it so anyway, it's you know it's 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 different. I could I could I don't want to be too critical, but well, they're also I, I think though it w- would be interesting to see how many rehearsals they had leading up to that because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sometimes Sony would just have them re- go in and say this is what we're doing today, and there'd be very little preparation. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Yeah. Now the w- one thing that they did really nice is they paid attention to the the final dynamics, which is uh, we have pianissimo. Uh, triple P, quadruple P, and uh, five P's. Okay, so now I don't know if you know if Tchaikovsky uh, was just trying to create havoc for trombone players, but um, but anyway, they do that very nicely. They get very soft, and the question is, how soft can you get? You know. So uh, anyway, so they did it very. They, they did that very nicely. I thought. Do, do do conductors have there been a conductor that really tries to um, uh, instruct or influence what you're doing at that stage that you've encountered? I'm sorry. Say that. Say well, again. you know about yeah. of saying you know I want you to take it in a certain way. I want you to even get softer. I mean, has there oh. been different conductors that have really tried to even mold that more? Oh yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some are f- obsessed with soft playing. And they should, you know. But I think uh, orchestras will play soft only if the the person, uh, um, you know, leading will require that. Okay. I mean, you know, there'd be certain if if only two two people played soft and the rest didn't. What's the point? (laughs) You know. So it it needs it needs to be uh, levied from from the podium, and um, so right. Yeah. Well, should we listen? Let's listen to the 1944 one. This is uh, at the same point, which is Radzinski and then Armand Ruta. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you know anything about Armand Ruta? He was Well, yeah, I tried to find out some information from him. First of all, he played in the Cleveland Orchestra from 1927 to 1934. Interesting. Because, see, this is Radzinski. And this is a really tough time in the orchestra in the 40s because Radzinski is, has, like, fired 15 members. Yes, there was a lot of people right. that were fired. Right. Now, I know I know Ruto, uh, and was there was a story, some story here, that he was um, fired a couple times, <laughs> um, I think, in the same orchestra. Oh, really? Maybe Cleveland, I'm not sure, but, uh. but there's a, a story about that. And, of course, the war... You know, 1946. Right. Uh, excuse, excuse me, 1944. Uh, Mario, well, see, Mario Falcone yeah. 
Right. He's till 43. He, right. He right. died in 44. Oh, did he die? He died in, in, he died in 44, mm -hmm. and he played in the orchestra from uh, 1909. Uh, and he was a euphonium player, and he played in Conway's band. But anyway, we're getting off track here. I uh, In 44, because of the war, then there was a bunch of interns that came in. Right. And then in 1946, there was a brand new section. Oh, I see. And that was, was Gordon, Gordon Pulis and Ostrander and Van Haney. Um, so anyway, mm. but Ruta, I don't don't know that much about him, but I don't either. But you know, back then these uh, in that time period, there was many Italians uh, that showed up in the in the, in the Met, uh, you know, even the turn of the century, and then they they kind of ruled for a long time. So in the, the my trombone chair was occupied by Ruta and Simone Simone Mantia and Mario Falcone. Mantia played at the New York Philharmonic, and then he went to the Met, hmm. and he became personnel manager there, and he was he remained there for 37 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. That. Anyway. Okay. But no, I don't know too much about Ruta. Well, let's hear that. Radzinski, uh, Ruta, That's very interesting. Now, what? First of all, so fast, very fast, and vibrato. It could have been slide vibrato. Huh. Could have been slide vibrato. If I use, if I did vibrato on that chorale in these days, I would be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that the, 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 it, the, this, the back then, uh, you know, it, it could be a lot of these, pl the players back then. You know, the Philharmonic was probably only a 26-week season back then. Is that true? To tw 28, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. they did a lot of other things, yes. these musicians. They played in dance bands. Yeah. They, they you know, they played in, uh, the, you know, the Goldman Band or the, the, the uh, you know, Arthur Pryor was around, Sousa. Um, you know, but they did a lot of different things to make money. Right. You know, and as a matter of fact, I think a lot of them made their, most of their money outside of the orchestra. And you and you played vibrato more in those kinds of Perhaps, situations yeah, yeah, than, that, than yeah, you would it, in the in the yeah and and of orchestra. course Tom, Tommy Dorsey was around at that time yeah. he was the king of slide vibrato yeah. anyway so it, that could have been the slide vibrato it sounds like it and and yeah. but very strange I don't think there's any in modern day interpretation like that and and that was so fast that there was no time to make any expression in those hairpin crescendos. Right. No, it doesn't have the emotional quality yeah. at all. And it didn't get yeah. very soft at the end at all. It didn't. It's hard to know how it was recorded, though, then, right? Um, well, it could be. It's different, too. Yeah, it could be, yeah. In, in what, where that is and what they're doing. But, um, no, and it's... Um, well, it, and we'd have to listen to maybe another recording from around that time to see if that was the standard way of doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah, um, I've never heard it with that amount of vibrato before. So we'll interesting. Have to see, it is. <laughs> 
Okay. And I couldn't tell much from Ruta's sound, you know, really. Oh, no, he had a nice sound. sound. He yeah. had a very nice sound. Yeah. That uh, I think the sounds that I heard in, in this version are very good. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I mean, now you gave me a list. Is there something in particular you would, we started with the Chike Six, but is right. there, do you want to hear uh, Mahler? Who's conducting this again? This is Bruno Walter. Bruno Walter, okay. And it's uh, in Gordon Pulis, Bill Vacchiano. Um, you know, and, and the distinction Walter has it is that he was a student of Mahler's. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've always, I, I am so sorry that Mario Falcone didn't make it to just 47, you mm-hmm. know, because it's so close, because Mario Falcone then played with Mahler. Mm-hmm. And then with Bruno Walter, and it, it, and it'd be interesting to know. So, so Mario Falcone actually played in a lot of the Mahler, the Walter performances before the recording mm-hmm. was made. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting. But I don't know. Is there? What, what do you think of? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, brass playing and styles have changed. I mean, that's just no two ways about it. That was the style back then. Right. You know, and Vacano defined that style. So when I listen to that, I hear the notes beginning large, and then they decay. So there was a, uh, which which is not a bad idea in general. It's not it's not good to go the other way. That's for sure. And start <laughs> small and go, and go large. But that he he really, um, it's almost exaggerated. Yeah. That and so, to if you heard it. You know, if you if we if you were to hear this and a bunch of brass players listen to this, and they didn't know who it was, you know, they'd say, "Well, what is that? That's strange. You know, what's going on here?" But, wh- like I said, you know, what what what's in style at one point goes out of style, you know, and and eventually there'll be some other style that we're doing that we're, we're going to go out of style as well, <laughs> you know. So you think so? Maybe. Maybe yeah. there might be some other way of playing this that you know, or some conductor might have another, uh, you know, vision of it that nobody had ever thought about. So uh, anyway, then the other thing that that strikes me is when the trombones come in, the rhythm, bomb, bomb, da da. It's it's not written that. They're almost double dotting it. Hmm. Uh, the the this this figure. But when I've always played it, it's bomb. Bum bum bum, bum. So, uh, Bruno Walter must have instructed them to do that. Right. I've never heard that either. Right. 
uh, I've never played it that way. No, no conductor's ever asked to do that. So I just think that the styles were exaggerated maybe back then. Whatever style a conductor had, he wanted to go off and, and do it so it was so exaggerated. Well, it's also, uh, and it's what I really love about our art form, it, even though, you know, we're always criticized or a conductor's always criticized that they're not playing it exactly as the composer wrote it, but yet it's always reinterpreted. Mm-hmm. It's, there's always mm-hmm. a new way of looking at it because there's you can't write music precisely. Mm-hmm. There's always a, a, you bring yourself to it. No. Yeah. Conductor does, the, the, the players do. The, I mean, the other thing that hits me here is that because orchestras are, you know, tour all over the place and, and a lot of recordings are available just like that on, on your fi- from your fingertips. You can go on YouTube and hear anything. Right. And also the teaching, now that teachers travel all over the world, okay, um, I think there's it's sort of a melting pot of styles, and the styles have become very similar. And not as in, distinct. Not as distinct. Yeah. And so, you know, the way that Vaccano played it, and in this performance, I don't think you'll hear that anymore. There's no, there's nobody will nobody will do it that way. And yet, and yet, Vaccano taught everybody. That's right. Right. He, yeah, that's he right. He taught everybody. He taught my, my father too, of course. Right. He did that. And and um, anyway, but that was the style, and and maybe it comes from the, the opera uh, background. For, you know that a lot of, I think a lot of musicians back then listened to a lot of opera. That was something you know in the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts mm-hmm. and and singers and uh, the you know the connection between singing and and brass playing. I think it was probably uh, you know more connected than it is now. Well, I was going to ask that because you you talk about that in your own background of how influenced you were by your mother who was a singer and that she she would always encourage you to play in a singing style. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Phil Smith said, mm-hmm. that he always, he always had a voice in his head. He's playing as a singer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is what you hear from, from both of you in that. Uh, and, and yet that's not, it, that makes perfect sense to me. And mm-hmm. so, but that's not necessarily how people are taught so much today. Well, that's, yeah, that's the way I teach at Juilliard. My, mm-hmm. my students have to sing and conduct in their, in their, lessons um, even if they're not used to it hmm. and, and students are kind of shy that well I, you know I don't want to do this and you know and maybe I was at that age too you know but um, you know I, I think it has to, you have to connect brass playing with singing and actually a brass player and a singer share that one thing in common that no other uh, there's no other association between the singer and let's say a, a string player or a woodwind player and that is we make our sound with a hu- human tissue mm-hmm. okay and and um, so to have that idea of singing and it goes directly to the lips and buzzing and so forth that's that's a huge um, uh, you know thing that I teach but again the, the the way of playing back then it's it seems very funky you know to listen right. to this it's it's uh, right. uh, very strange it may seem outdated and it is 
but yeah. you're never going to hear that style again. It's right. not coming back. It's not coming, it's not coming back. back. And and yes, I would like to see people go off a little bit more and and and. Uh, well, we can listen. You know, I'd like to just we we have 19. Uh, we have the same Mahler with uh, Phil Smith oh, yeah. in 1980, but this would be Ed Ed Herman and Tenstedt. But this is the performance that Phil said defined his his idea of how to open the Mahler five mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and so hear let's hear that miss Phil a lot you know I've, it, that was that's uh, unbelievable playing right and and the thing that struck me about that is his decays are different the decay lasts a long time yeah. where Varkiana would do it almost immediately so again it's just a style thing but um, but to hear Phil make that diminuendo and the control that he he did he had uh, in this performance it's just Really, I think you could tell us. You can tell a story a lot from the way you make a diminuendo, hmm. because it, hmm. you draw the listener in. When the hmm. when the when you make something like that, that kind of diminuendo that goes to nothing. You yeah. want you want to listen to it even more, and and the tension and the drama, and that kind of relates to the I think the the Bernstein recording of of uh, Tchaikovsky Six, because the same thing he's. He's giving us time to make these decays, and I think the decay. Uh, my teacher at Curtis, Glenn Dotson, he was the first person to who brought that up in my uh, training. He said you got to have a fantastic release, and so Phil, that's what I mean. That's what is noteworthy in in this performance of Phil Smith. Not to you know, not to mention his sound, his vibrato, and, and his epic and heroic style. Uh, that's I think Phil Smith's um, playing epic and heroic and beauty those those three things so are, is define his playing. But it's even interesting to listen to the the lower brass in this because Ed Herman is is from let's see he joined the orchestra in '52 so he's closer to that. Ruta performance and that style that we heard in forty yes seven or right. that's forty seven was Gordon Pulis sorry, and right. and yet you know he's evolving along he's up more in a modern style now right is it 
or did you still hear some of the older oh. style in that? Maybe. Now, when I heard the trombones come in there on yeah. the Mahler Five, uh, this was Tenstead, right? That's Tenstead. Yeah. Right. The the rhythm also is distorted a bit, and and then the horns copy that, so it's not exact. Bomb, 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 bomb. They play bomb, bomb, bop, bomb. It's a little bit stylized. And also, uh, when I played the Mahler Five with Phil Smith, you know, Phil was sort of the, I considered him the leader of our brass section, and, and as I think all first trumpets should be, but Phil had such a defined um, uh, vision of the way things should go. So um, probably from Meta, or I'm not sure who it came from, but you know, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. So you, it's written one, two, three, da-da-da-da. But he says, no, we, have, we should do it as a triplet of a triplet. One, two, three. Da 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 da, da 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 da. So it's later and quicker, and and so that's something that I think for some reason we still do at the Philharmonic. You still have that. Yeah. It's probably a Phil Smith thing that's carrying over in from, a way from somebody. Yeah. From somebody. Yeah. Um, well, I think from what we've listened to, Phil really defined that at least uh, oh, kind of moment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We did that. Um, well, and we're going to run out of time here. It's, it's, well, I was uh, thinking the Heldenleben was... I, what else did we oh, pick here? here. But the Heldenleben takes us back to Falcone. Oh, okay, sure. Let's and do that. that would be 1928, and it's Mengelberg. And Mengelberg, Heldenleben was actually dedicated to Mengelberg. And Mengelberg is the first Dutch conductor at mm. the New York Philharmonic. Okay. And so this is Mengelberg conducting with Mario Falcone in 1928. And let's see, we've got here the battle scene.
struck me on this uh, recording is how short the trumpets play when they enter. It's, it's, and then it's almost, uh, you know, spiccato, you know, just, uh, or not spiccato, but no. super dry, secco, secco. And uh, anyway, so I noticed the trumpet section. Harry Glantz and Schlossberg were both of my father's teachers. Hmm. Uh, and um, my father had an interesting story about Harry Glantz because he, he went to the lessons and he said, hello, Mr. Glantz. And he would say that every week. And said, you know, he said, uh, you don't have to call me Mr. Glantz. You know me now. You can call me Harry. So he went into the next lesson and he said, Hi, Harry. Said, Don't you ever call me Mr. Harry again. <laughs> and so, anyway, he did. So, You're yeah. Just to keep him off, off, off kilter. And then Schlossberg, of course, was uh, Vacano's teacher. Right. And, right. and my father's teacher. So, anyway, it's kind of right. interesting to see that. Um, but it's just amazing how short everything is. And then that vibrato again. There's yeah. vibrato that comes into play that you just don't hear modern brass yeah. players uh, do very much. Now, now I'd just like to ask here, I mean, I said this to, to Phil as well. I mean, so this is Mengelberg conducting. The work was written, was dedicated to Mengelberg by the composer. He's instructing the orchestra how to play this. So shouldn't we think that this is the right way to do it? Well, yeah, oh. but, but again, everything's changed, these traditions and everything. Uh, okay. You know, what, what goes what was in style goes out of style, and and um, if I were to again, if I were to play this kind of vibrato for any modern day conductor, they would say, "Cut that stuff out! Don't, <laughs> don't do that." Well, it's like with the portamento too, and the strings, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, no, you're not allowed right. to do that. But but it is fascinating to listen back, and and it's and it's obviously what the composer heard. Yeah, apparently, right. uh, it just fell out of style. Fell out uh, of favor. I mean, so so if Strauss heard you playing this today, would he say, "Who do you guys think you are?" That's not what I wrote. No, if he heard enough orchestras do it, <laughs> maybe he would he would say, "You know, I like it better that way." He could have, you know. He could. He, he could. Yeah. You know, so it's hard to say. So yeah, Mario Falcone played first trombone on this, and um, like he he was from Naples, and then again, that's the time where. Italians ruled all the brass playing. And actually, if you look at the, the roster of the orchestras, a lot of Germans and Italians, mainly. Right. Uh, well, there, there was quite a, and then the Russians came in as yeah, well. You, yeah. you started to have, then there there would be these, um, you know, the orchestra personnel sheets you see sometimes where there's a fist fight backstage and it's got to be settled. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well. So, uh, yeah. It was a rough group. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, people didn't stick around that long. No. Either because the pay wasn't good or the job security. You know, the, the conductor could fire you just on the spot. You're out of there. Well, it, but, I mean, that's why it's interesting to have Falcone for so long and Harry Glantz and Schlossberg. They're, they're in there for so long. Uh, but a lot, of these, a lot of these brass players, you know, yep. they played in bands. You know, uh, uh, Mario Falcone was a euphonium player, mm. played fantastic euphonium, played in the Conway's band. And um, so yeah, anyway, um, wow. you know, th there's a lot, of, a lot of history. All these brass players started showing up in New York and, you know, sort of pioneers right. of, of the instruments back then. 
Okay. Did you? Yes. Uh, why don't we? Why don't we pick Shostakovich um, five? They're both in. He was around a long. I wouldn't time. mind hearing the '79 because that's right around that time. That's when I heard the orchestra live. Oh yeah. Uh, with Lenny conducting, and um, it's sort of uh, that was just well several years before I auditioned. I knew that the there would be an audition coming up at some point, but th this was right around the time that I joined. New York, uh, sorry, the Philadelphia Orchestra. Right. And um, there might have been an even later performance of it because they, they the orchestra was on their way to Japan. Okay. And they, and they played in the San Francisco Opera House. And that's, that's where I heard this live performance. And I was uh, especially excited to hear uh, Warren Deck, the tuba player, and also Don Harwood. They played so well together. Right. And I was so impressed with that. Right. What do you want to hear from that? We can hear the, um, I think, the beginning of the fourth movement. <laughs> Yes. And now, do you have uh, the roster for this, by any chance? Uh, this is 79. Nine. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So anyway, I was exactly right, and that is uh, <coughs> Don Harwood and Warren Deck showed up on the scene, and you could hear on this recording what a great team they were. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing the orchestra live uh, just shortly after this, and in San Francisco Opera House and just how they were sort of on thinking of one mind. And If you listen to trombone playing as it develops and you can hear more length coming into the into each note. Okay, so there's a little bit more substance and I call it like if you're going to a butcher and you want a, a piece of steak, you know, you want a nice thick piece of meat. Uh, you can hear that happening. The, the, the notes get a little bit wider and thicker. Huh. And so Don is, is that's very clear. He was sort of the modern uh, version of, of the bass trombone at that time. And, and uh, Warren came from the Houston Symphony, and the two of them matched perfectly. It was really a great team. Right. So that's what strikes me of right. this. That's why I wanted to hear it again. Oh, that's great. And, um, you know, then four or five years later, I show up. So I'm, it was did great to play with those guys. Did you know, uh, did you know Phil Smith before you came? 
Uh, I knew of him. Right. Yeah, I I didn't. But you didn't know no, him personally. No, I, my my father would always talk about him, and and because uh, you had such a close relationship. But I I was just struck about kind of the similarity of your family's backgrounds. That his father was this great cornet player, and and your grandfather was this great cornet player, and so you both came out of families with cornet influences, mm-hmm. and then you both end up, and you both have this singing influence and then you both end up at the New York Philharmonic mm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and that's just, that's yeah. really remarkable, I think. Yeah, well, um, that's, uh, and, I'm, and I'm very lucky we still get to work with Phil because he's coming, he comes and does our uh, holiday brass concerts and so he'll be back in December to do that. And there's 30 years of recordings. Yes. And it's thirty years yeah. of recording so that of the two of you playing yeah. together. Oh, I'm so, you know. it was it was a, a great joy. Yeah. You know, and, and I I miss him very much, yeah. you know. Yeah. So anyway. You have to listen to the podcast. I, I will. <laughs> yes. I his, his podcast. I want to listen yeah, to yeah, that. They yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's up there. So yeah. anyway. <laughs> anyway, it is it is as always such a such a pleasure and a joy to, to speak with you. Um I I've I've known you since I started in 84, you started in 85, so I've known you all those years, and, and still, y- you tell me something that I didn't know before, and, oh, and it is, it is uh, great fun and, and yeah. just lovely. Well, thank we're, you. I'm honored to work with you, you in all these years, and yeah. it's just it's wonderful, yeah. so thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Joe Alessi for coming in to talk with us today. It has been, as always, so much fun. For deeper digging into the program's rosters and even the mark scores used by the conductors we talked about today, please visit the New York Philharmonic Leon Levy Digital Archives at archives.nyphil.org. For further thoughts, ideas, and insights about our discussion, they are always welcome. Please email archives at nifil.org. The recording engineer for this podcast is Larry Rock, the Philharmonic's audio director, assisted by Ian Good. The program was edited by Charles Van Tassel, who also composed our podcast theme. <laughs>